uh, verses 1 through 11, and we're calling today's message Letters in the Sand. And I wonder how many of you have ever been caught, you know, doing something that you absolutely knew you weren't supposed to be doing, and you got caught, caught in the very act, so caught that you can't lie to get your way out of it, there's no denying it, no excuses, no getting around, no covering it up, you're caught red-handed with your hand in the cookie jar, you got crumbs on the corner of your mouth, you have been caught. Anybody ever been caught? Yeah. I was thinking about that, and I was thinking in Scripture, you know, how many people got caught. It goes all the way back to the beginning, Adam and Eve. Remember in the third chapter of Genesis, they'd both eaten from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And the account says that when they had eaten from that tree, their eyes were opened and they knew. They knew. And then in verse 8, listen to this. They heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden and the man and the wife hid themselves from the presence of God. They knew. They knew and they were caught. And so they hid. And so, again, what about you? Have you ever been caught. I think in uh, scriptures of, of uh, King David, and you remember that story in, in uh, 2 Samuel 11 and 12, he had a, a sordid affair with Bathsheba, and then she got pregnant, and he covered it up by having her husband sent to the front lines of the war and being killed. And he thought he had gotten away with it. You remember that? He thought he had gotten away with it. But the things that David did were evil in the sight of the Lord, the scripture says. And so God sent the prophet Nathan to him. And if you remember, Nathan told him an elaborate story about a, a little lamb that had been taken away from the poor man and the rich man took it and used it to, to feed his house guest. And David in his self-righteous anger, furious, said, the man should be killed immediately. Uh, and then, what did Nathan say? You are the man. Thou art the man. David was caught red-handed. No denying it, no excuses, no getting around it, no covering it up. And again, what about you? Have you ever been caught? I have. I've been caught. I remember when I was 16 years old, very early in my driving career, and I was on my way to school driving my 1963 Plymouth Valiant. Oh, that was a sweet ride, I'll tell you. I drove in style. I thought I had it three on the tree, manual shift, slant six engine. The speedometer went all the way up to 85. How about that? Woo! Well, I was a teenager and I was late for school and I was in much too much of a hurry and I was taking kind of a back route because I knew that if I went through, through town, I couldn't drive as fast. So I took this back route uh, and the speed limit was 45 but I was going 75. I was trying to see if I could get the needle up to that elusive 85 maybe even. I came over a little rise and what did I see? I was met by one of Honolulu's finest, HPD, 5-0, uh-oh. Immediately hit the brakes, look in the rearview mirror and what do I see? The blue lights flashing, the police car making his U-turn and I was caught. I knew I was caught, my very first speeding ticket. Sadly, it wasn't my last. I'm going to just be honest about that. But it was my first. So what about you? Have you ever been caught? Do you remember that feeling in your gut when you were caught? There's nothing more humiliating than being caught. 
in the act of disobedience. Whether it's a, a child with their hand in the cookie jar or a teenager that's driving well over the speed limit, we all know the sinking feeling of being caught. Well, today we are going to be examining a passage of Scripture that perhaps is familiar to many of you, especially if you've grown up in and around the church, if you spent some time reading and studying the life of Jesus, and it involves a woman caught, caught in the most awkward of situations, in the very act of adultery. And the way that Jesus responds is perhaps surprising. This story is found in John chapter 8. If you want to turn in your Bibles there, that's where we're going to be in verses 8, uh, verses 1 through 11 of chapter 8. But before we get into this uh, event together, uh, I want to address an issue about this particular passage. Uh, there's a number of passages like this in the New Testament where you're going to see little brackets around it, maybe some footnotes, and it's called a textual criticism. And there are questions about whether this particular section in our our Bible actually ought to even be there. And so in most English translations, in fact, if you're reading from pretty much any English translation other than the old King James, more than likely, you're going to see uh, that John 7:53 through 8:11 is going to have some sort of notation. It might be parentheses or brackets or a footnote saying, hey, something's different about this passage. And uh, it might say something like, the earliest manuscripts do not contain this section. But um, th these verses perhaps were added later in later manuscripts. Now, I don't want to belabor this point too much, but I, wanna, I just thought it would be good to share with you four questions that uh, are asked when a textual criticism comes up. And this is by the scholars and the translators as they're translating from those original uh, manuscripts and those ancient manuscripts into English. Uh, and so they ask some questions to say, hey, should we add this in here? Should we put a footnote? And so here are the four key questions whenever a textual criticism comes up. And the first question is this, do these verses or this passage, does it teach any truths that violate other scriptures? And if it does, they don't include it. In our case, absolutely not. The answer is no. It uh, does not violate any other scriptures. Number two, do these verses corroborate other scriptures or substantiate them? And in our case, uh, the answer is absolutely yes, they do. And that's why it's been included. Number three, do these verses fit all that we know about the person and teaching of Christ? If they fit and the other things are true, then it's going to be included. If they don't fit, if it doesn't have the ring of truth, they, they won't include it. And then the fourth question, is there definitive and conclusive evidence that these verses should be left out? And again, in, the an, in answer to this particular text, the answer is no. And so that's why it has been included in your New Testament. And with all of this and other considerations, these scholars, these translators have seen fit to include this passage in uh, the English scriptures today. Uh, and so, and by the way, even if it wasn't in the original writing of John, there is absolutely nothing in this passage that would make us question its validity as an actual event that took place in the life and ministry of Jesus. In fact, if you've been around here for the last 20 weeks or so, you might remember that we started the Gospel of John by looking at the very last verse in John. John 
21-25, which says, And there were also many other things which Jesus did, which if they were written in detail, I suppose that even the world itself would not contain the books that would be written. And so John is being upfront from the very beginning, saying, look, there's a lot of other stuff I could have included that I didn't. But in this case, this particular text has that ring of truth. And so, having given you that background, I want to just get into the text together. We're going to read the first part together. The words are on the screen, beginning with chapter 8 in verse 1. So let's read this together. But Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning, he came again to the temple. All the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery. And placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such woman. So what do you say? This they said to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. Amen. The word of God. So, I want you just to imagine with me for a moment. What would it feel like for this woman as these religious leaders not only catch her in the very act of adultery, but then they drag her through the town and cast her into the center of the court of the temple in front of Jesus and all of the people that were gathered there listening to him teach. I don't want us to allow the awfulness of this moment to pass us by. Can you imagine what's going through her mind as she is placed there, forced to, to stand, maybe just barely covered, in front of all of these people and of Jesus the rabbi, and they're asking him to make a judgment? And there is no pity, there's no empathy, there's no compassion, there's no love, only accusation, only judgment, only condemnation in the eyes of the accusers who have drug her to this place. And the scribes and the Pharisees, they declare in verse 5 that in the law, Moses commanded that such women should be stoned to death. And so what do they do? Jesus, what do you think? What do you say? Should we kill her right here on the spot? Now, what they said was true, or at least partially true. Adultery is condemned in the Old Testament law, and by the way, in the New Testament as well. The, the seventh commandment you might be familiar with says you shall not commit adultery. And yes, in the ancient Mosaic law, the transgression of the law was punishable by death. Now, if you, though, were to look up the law in the books of Leviticus in chapter 20 and Deuteronomy chapter 22, you would find that it says both the man and the woman were to be punished. So what is instructive for us today as we consider this passage is that it, I think, speaks to the motives of these scribes and Pharisees. Where's the man? Where's the man in this thing? If they were truly so worried about fulfilling the letter of the law, then where's the other guilty party? After all, she was, as it says, caught in the act. Takes two to tango, doesn't it? The reality is their motives were impure. They were filled with self-righteous hypocrisy and judgmentalism as they brought this woman to Jesus. Now, verse 6 gave us a very clear insight into their motives. It said, this they said to test him, 
that they might have some charge to bring against him. They were looking for a gotcha, a way to grab Jesus and say, aha, we got you now. You just, so you see, if he had said, no, don't stone her, then what is he saying? Well, then he's a lawbreaker. And it would discredit him as a rabbi, as a teacher, in front of all of these people in the temple. On the other hand, if he said, yeah, let's stone her, grab some rocks, and let's get going, then he would be in violation of the occupying Roman authorities who had outlawed any capital punishment on behalf of the Jews. And so they thought they had Jesus in a trap. But let's look at his response. Let's read together the next section, beginning in the middle of verse 6 again. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more he bent down and wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away, one by one, beginning with the older ones, and Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. Amen. The word of God. Well, first of all, What's up with this deal of writing on the ground? What's going on there? And you wonder about that? What is it that he wrote? Why did he do that? Now, obviously, the scripture doesn't tell us. So ultimately, we can't be certain. Uh, here are just a, a few ideas that are suggested by some of the Bible scholars and commentators. Uh, one idea is that Jesus was angry because of the obvious hypocrisy of the religious leaders, and he needed just a second to calm himself down. Kind of like counting to 10, you know? taking a breath uh, before he gives his answer. I, I don't know if that's really what's going on here since he does it again, a second time in verse eight. Uh, another idea is that uh, he just needed a few moments to collect his thoughts and so he doodles on the ground as he's thinking of how he will respond. I don't know about that either. I mean, this is Jesus. I think he knows how he's gonna respond. Uh, and so the one that makes most sense to me is this one. Uh, he's writing something that brings accusation against the accuser users, the scribes and the Pharisees, the religious leaders in this case. In the, uh, in the original language that's used here, uh, the word in verse 6 that's translated into English as wrote is the Greek word katagrapho, uh, all right, which is the word grapho. We get our words graphics from them. It literally means to write. And then that, that prefix kata or kata, which can be translated against, against. And so the emphasis then of katagrapho is something that is written against or against the accusation. And so perhaps, again, we don't know exactly what Jesus was writing. We're just kind of imagining here. But perhaps Jesus knows the hearts of these men so much and their condition that he is writing in the dirt maybe the very sins that he knows are in their lives. Can you imagine that? Maybe he writes, Joe, hypocrisy, Tom, pride, Frank, greed, Charlie, sexual sin selfishness, hatred, false testimony, gossiping, cheating. Can you imagine that if that was what was going on? And so 
Jesus then gives them his answer. He who is without sin among you, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. That's it. And then he starts writing in the dirt again. Maybe he continues his list there. Letting it all sink in. Can you imagine the stunned silence of the crowd and the shocked expression of those men standing in accusation over this poor woman. Now, I'm not sure how long it took, but our text tells us that one by one, beginning with the older man, they began to leave until finally it's just Jesus and the woman there in the courtyard, all of the accusers gone, and then Jesus has that short but beautiful conversation with the woman. Where are they? Is there no one to condemn you? No one. No one, Lord. I don't condemn you either. Go and from now on, sin no more. You know, Jesus is so masterful at this, of having the perfect answer in the perfect setting at the perfect time. Whether it was, remember when he was speaking with the, the woman at the well and he was dealing with kind of the hypocritical traps of the religious establishment? Or when he was answering the, the late night musings and questions of the, of the uh, honored religious leader and teacher Nicodemus? Or he was relating to those who are deemed sinful and condemned in the eyes of the others. Jesus has the right answer. And he always exemplifies the character of the Father. Back in chapter 1, John wrote that Jesus was full of grace and truth. Full of grace and truth. And then later in that chapter, in verse 17 of chapter 1, he says, For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. And so Jesus Christ is always perfectly balanced. And that is what we aspire to in our own life. How can we achieve the balance or pursue that balance that Jesus has? So for the rest of our time, we're going to just consider three key aspects of Jesus' character. Ones that I hope that we can apply to our own lives as we seek to follow him more fully. And the first one is this. Jesus is not condemning. Jesus is not condemning. For some reason or another, we... And certainly many people in the world sometimes have this idea that God is a condemning God, that he's just looking for the opportunity to drop the hammer, to pound the gavel, to judge and condemn. But friends, that is so far from the truth. God isn't condemning as we think of condemnation. He is just. And he certainly will exact justice over the earth, but by his very nature, he is not simply looking for an opportunity to bring down condemnation. In fact, listen to what the scriptures say. This is from Exodus 34. It's speaking about God and it says, The Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth, who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin. Folks, that's the God of the Old Testament that we often view as so vengeful and harsh. God is compassionate and gracious. The psalmist writes in Psalm 103, the Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in loving 
kindness. That is the God we serve. And Jesus exemplifies the character of the Father. And we, if we are to call ourselves disciples or followers of Jesus, we are called to do the same. To learn and then to pursue the character of Christ. To live as he lived. As I was preparing this message, I came across a kind of a simple statement and illustration that I think will help us understand why Jesus isn't condemning and why we shouldn't be condemning. Think, here's the statement. Uh, hunters hunt, golfers golf, fishers fish, and you finish it with me. Sinners sin. Sinners sin, right? Hunters hunt, golfers golf, fishers fish, and sinners sin. That's what sinners do. So why are we so shocked that we live in a world of sin? You know, many, many years ago, when I was, after I graduated from college, I went to Europe, and one of the places we visited was England. And we rented a car in London to drive to Stonehenge. And there in, in London, we have them here, but they're nothing like they have in England, are these things called roundabouts. Or they call them roundaboots. Roundaboots. Uh, you've probably seen pictures or videos. You know, three lanes with cars, a couple with trucks, some with double-decker buses, and then you throw in some scooters and whatnot, and everybody's weaving through, and nobody really seems to care. The lines don't matter. That's the expectation. And they actually expect people to, to get out of the, la the lanes and, and to move all over the place. Now, here in the U.S., it's different, isn't it? Right? We expect you to stay in your lane. We, we have that statement, right? Stay in your lane, buddy. Stay in your lane. If somebody comes over into our lane, what do we do? We're shocked. We're offended. And if someone comes into our, our lane, we honk. Stay in your lane. And, and, and even if just somebody just begins to maybe swerve into our lane a little bit, we, what do we do again? We honk, and then we, we get up beside him, we, we, and we give him the what, what? What are you thinking? I was going to say, we give them that glare. You almost came into my lane. That look, you know. You see, friends, this is why Jesus wasn't shocked by sin. It's because Jesus did not expect sinners to stay in the lanes. That is why he was not condemning. He didn't have the holier-than-thou attitude. He was not just looking for an opportunity to bring condemnation to others. In fact, John wrote just a few chapters back in chapter 3, right after John 3.16, that famous verse, the next verse, he said, For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world through him might be saved. Brothers and sisters, if we are going to live like Jesus, we need to jettison the holier-than-thou attitude. As Jesus' people, we must stop looking for opportunities to proclaim condemnation. And how do we do that? We say things, we, we name-call, we have superior attitudes, we're shocked, we, we cry out for justice, oh, I hope they fry. Oh, they deserve the, ah. Uh, and, and we want justice for others. But what? We love mercy and grace for ourselves, right? We even sing about it. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound. But that's for me. 
you better toe the line. Stay in your lane. And that is the attitude, friends, that we must get rid of. Rather than bringing a message of condemnation, we are to bring the message of salvation to the world. Jesus has passed that task on to us. And so the first aspect of Jesus' character that we see here in this passage is that he is not condemning. Well, there's another character trait that we want to look at, and that is, number two, that Jesus is not compromising. He's not compromising. If we stopped right here at this point in the message, we might get the idea that because Jesus expected sinners to sin, that, oh, you mean, Rob, what are you saying? He just winked at it? And said, oh, okay, it's okay, you can't help it, you're a sinner, that's what you do. Kind of that permissive attitude, but that's not what we're talking about. We're not saying, oh, go ahead and think what you think and do what you do. No, we're not making these flippant statements like, oh, the devil made me do it and kind of laughing it off. No, that's not what's going on here because although Jesus isn't shocked by sin, that doesn't imply in any way that he is willing to condone sin either. Look at the text again in, in verse 11. As Jesus declares to the woman, neither do I condemn you, look at the very next statement that comes out of his mouth. Now go and sin no more. Jesus says to the woman, I, I don't condemn you. Now go and leave behind your life and your pattern of sin and sinfulness. Jesus isn't condemning, but he also is not compromising. Listen to these two scriptures that kind of show these two sides of Jesus. One is in Matthew eleven nineteen, where Matthew is writing uh, about Jesus. Uh, he calls him the son of man, and he says, the son of man came eating and drinking. And they say, Look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. See, those religious hypocrites, that's how they judged Jesus. He was, he was a friend of sinners. And Jesus did spend time with sinners. And so he was not condemning. But he was also not condoning. Listen to this verse from Hebrews verse, uh, chapter 7. And uh, again, this is speaking uh, of Jesus. And the Hebrew writer says, It was fitting for us to have such a high priest, holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners. Isn't that interesting? Jesus is both a friend of sinners and separated from sinners. He did not practice condemnation, but he did not condone either. He was the friend of sinners and separated from sinners. He is perfectly balanced. Perfectly balanced. Now, we are not perfect, and we will never be perfectly balanced, but we can pursue that attitude and that character trait in our life. You know, often we like to point out that Jesus was a friend of sinners, and we even say something like, oh, Jesus liked to hang out with sinners. And that's probably not the best way to state that, though. It wasn't so much that Jesus was hanging out with sinners. It was the sinners who enjoyed hanging out with Jesus. And why was that? Why was that? What made Jesus so relevant to the culture around him that people just wanted to be with him, even when they were mired in the junk in the ugliness of their own lives. I think it was because of these key aspects of his character. He wasn't condemning, 
but he also wasn't compromising. And if we, friends, are going to live like him, we too must exemplify this balanced characteristic in our lives. Jesus is not condemning. He is not compromising. And the third aspect of his character that we want to look at and consider is number three, Jesus is compassionate. Jesus is compassionate. There's a, a beautiful passage in Matthew 9 that says of, of Jesus that when he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Um, if, you, if you use the old King James, the word compassion, sometimes it's translated bowels of mercy. Bowels of, and that's because this, this word that we translate compassion in English, it's talking about our guts, our guts, okay? This stuff down here. And, and have, have your guts ever just ached for others? All right, when you see the hardships and the trials that others are going through, do your gut, does your gut ache for them? Or do you default towards condemnation? Oh, they need to get their life together. Or do you perhaps lean towards condoning. Well, they don't understand, and so it's okay. See, those are those two extremes. But compassion is the perfect balance. When we ache for others who are hurting, and we long to see them to, to, to know better, and to do better, and to experience better, because they know Jesus. That is the bowels of mercy, the compassion that Jesus so often had. As he looked at the multitude of people around him, Jesus is moved with compassion because they're distressed, they're lost, they're without direction and protection. They're like sheep with no shepherd. And friends, that must be our heart as well. When we see those in distress, the broken, the homeless, the crowds surging at the borders, the issues of, of violence in our community, drug issues all around us, do we respond with compassion? Do we ache like Jesus? Or are we quick to condemn? Well, if they just get a job, send them all back where they came from. You know what I'm talking about, right? I believe that as Jesus sees these religious leaders dragging this woman caught in adultery, he knows their motives. He knows their heart, their hypocrisy, their hatred, their condemnation. But as he looks at the woman, in spite of her sin, what does he see? He sees a child of the Father. And he looks upon her with love and grace and mercy Yes, he looks upon her with compassion. And brothers and sisters, if we're going to live like Jesus, we too must look upon others with a heart of compassion. I like to say that we want to see people through the eyes of Jesus. Take off your own glasses and put on your Jesus glasses and see people the way that Jesus saw them. If we're going to walk in the same manner that Jesus walked, we will, we will seek to interact with people in our lives without condemnation, without compromise, but always filled with compassion. Now, early, early in the message, I asked you this question several times. What about you? What about you? Have you ever been caught? 
The reality is we almost all must come to the realization that the answer to that question is a resounding yes. Yes, we have all been caught. Even if we think our sin is hidden, that no one knows because it's secret, guess what? He knows. In Hebrews 4, it says, There is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. You see, he knows, he sees, and he cares. He cares. So friends, we too have eyes to see. Jesus had eyes to see, and we have eyes to see. And so as we look at this world around us, I want to ask you this question. Will we see through the eyes of a doctor or the eyes of a judge? Let me explain that a little bit. The eyes of a doctor look upon others and they see the hurts and the heartaches that only God can heal. With doctor eyes, we see the machismo or the raunchiness or the anger as just merely disguises for insecurity or brokenness or failure. You see, doctor eyes see marriages where there's no love or children that don't have the security of boundaries. They see single parents struggling in loneliness and vulnerability that puts them at the risk of being deeply hurt. With the eyes of doctor, all of these symptoms that we observe, they become the hurts that God can heal. That's doctor eyes. And so in life, we can have the eyes of the doctor or we can have the eyes of the judge. What do the eyes of the judge see? The eyes of the judge see a, a rebellious teen or a deadbeat dad or a foul-mouthed person. And they leave thinking, why should I have anything to do with that person? They lack personal responsibility. They're unredeemable. They're unaccountable. They're evil. Their motives are hidden. Their ideas are contemptible. You see, the eyes of the judge observe problems that can't be fixed, but instead require punishment. But the eyes of the doctor, they see the hurts that only God can heal. And so which will we choose? Healing or condemnation? Compassion or judgment? Just like the, the woman in our text today, we too stand condemned. Not by God or by Jesus or by anyone else. We stand condemned by our own sinfulness. The, the word of God says that we've all sinned, that we've all fallen short of the glory of God and judgment is what we deserve. The result of our sin is condemnation. But listen closely to these two words and the hope that they bring. They, they bring. But God. Say that with me. But God. That little phrase is found all through Scripture. But God. But one of my favorites is, is Romans chapter 5 and verse 8. And it says, But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. You see, friends, God did not come to condemn. He came to save. 
And if we are to be followers of Jesus, if we are to follow his example, then may we have his heart. A heart that readily extends grace and mercy and compassion. And when we struggle within those areas, when we're pulled towards condemnation or we're pulled towards permissiveness and a condoning attitude, may our prayer be, Lord, help me to be balanced like you. May I be a follower of Jesus, full of compassion. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the compassion.